Yeah, Huda, you're in New York? I'm in New York, yeah, in my yeah. basement. Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, <laughs> that's, one, that's one does these days. Yeah. Uh, how's New York feeling now? Uh, it's, I mean, I'd, I'd seen some stories that the recovery is sort of taking hold and then, you know, pockets, there was school openings and then they backed off on that. Where, where, where is New York now? Oh, you guys don't know New York is over. That's what all the news reports said. New York, <laughs> New York is done. Um, actually, I mean, the truth is my, my kids are in private Jewish day schools, so they're actually both back at, they're all back at school. They all, they are reopened. They're in two different schools. Uh, New York is, is a little weird. Uh, some of the, some of the schools are open. Some of them have partial openings. The public schools, I think, are doing one day every two weeks in person. Uh, and a lot of people I know who are, wealthier or have their kids in private school moved out of the city just because they can. So it's just, it's weird. Uh, traffic's better. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this is a good time to tell our dear, dear listeners that we do have a third person on the line, the person whose voice you don't recognize. So we should probably introduce him. So we are very happy to have a special guest, uh, Yehuda Kurtzer. He is the, um, I'll just do like a little formal thing. It's weird because nothing we do is formal, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) He's the president of the Shalom Hardman Institute of North America. He is the author of a book, Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past. And he is also the host of a podcast, which I was not aware of, but I want to start listening to. It has a very cool name. It's called Identity Crisis. But between identity and crisis, there's a slash. So it's like identity slash crisis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I that, can describe it that the way. Sl- the slash does a lot of work. It's true. Yes, clearly. And we're happy to have Yehuda with us because he just came out um, the new article a few days ago in The Atlantic. Uh, the title of that is Brooklyn's Anti-Masking Protests Betray a Broken Culture. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes, we encourage you all to give it a read. And we'll maybe just start with with some of the themes that you touch on there, then we'll go more broad. And just to give you an advance warning, um, before this, right before this, just to rile myself up, before we actually start talking, I read Barry Weiss's big new essay in Tablet Magazine, which maybe you've seen, Yehuda. Yep. Um, so... There's some really interesting things there about Jewish identity, and that's a big part of what we'll talk about. Uh, what we'll talk about tonight, but before all, and and oh, because I before I forget, because I am sort of the chief marketing officer of the Wisdom of Crowds, I should tell our listeners that after this, we'll Demir and I will be doing a bonus episode for uh, for members only. And uh, you'll you'll know this this spiel that if you want to become a member and subscribe, you can do that for five dollars a month, and you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live/slash/subscribe. So if you like what we do and want and you want to support us and get some extra extra content, that's probably what you should do. And with that, I'll maybe just start off by asking Yehuda to. Um, just give us the short elevator pitch of what you were trying to convey to readers with your new piece in the Atlantic. Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I was kind of expecting that you wouldn't introduce me because I've, I've heard your podcast and you would just like have your listeners try try to figure out what's going on. Um, exactly. Uh, so what I was trying to do in my piece was, you know, there's these actually relatively small but very noisy protests going on in New York in parts of the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox communities in Brooklyn, which are anti-shutdown and also anti-mask. And they've been laced with pro-Trump rhetoric also. So they're 
they're highly political, highly charged, very anti de Blasio and anti Cuomo. And um, what I was trying to argue is that the rhetoric that those folks in those communities are using is that they are, they position themselves as being kind of outside of America, you know, acting countercultural. We don't hold to the norms of the society, but I was actually trying to argue that they are, they are actually highly American. So what they say about themselves doesn't match how they're actually acting and how they're acting is the way is a signal to America's brokenness where, uh, where citizenship seems to entitle people to a total rights discourse, um, but doesn't convey an obligations discourse. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of brokenness in America more generally, that being asked by our public officials to do the basic things like wear masks and retain, maintain social distancing should not be thought of as an oppressive regime. Um, it should actually be thought of as like basic demands of citizenship in a really difficult time. So they, they seem to me like they represent something broken much broader in America as we relate to citizenship than just being like a weird, um, idiosyncratic religious community that's standing apart for America. And the leader of these protests is a character who I was not previously familiar with. I guess his name is Heshi Tischler. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was actually surprised that um, these protests that he was leading, and also, as far as I understand it, he was targeting um, a Jewish journalist, J Jacob Kornblah, if I'm yep. pronouncing that correctly, and in a very frightening way, um, and it didn't get as much attention as I think it probably deserves. I saw a couple people talking about it on Twitter, but um, I don't know if it's filtered into the broader mainstream. Do you want to just give us a little bit of background about Heshi Tischler and why he was targeting this journalist? Yeah, Jacob Kornblum, who's the journalist, is a himself Hasidic journalist in, in the ultra-Orthodox community, but he also reports on the ultra-Orthodox community for, for other Jewish media publications. And he's, he's a, he's a straight shooter as a reporter. He tells people what's going on. And, uh, and Tischler, who's really kind of a car cartoon character, uh, in some ways, he's a, he's a radio show host. He's every time he gives his speeches, he's like, now listen to me this week on the Heshi Tischler show. Um, he's, uh, he's kind of a ludicrous character. He, uh, he kind of focused the crowd's attention on this journalist with using this terminology of being a Moser, being uh, a Jew who tells on Jews to the other authorities. Uh -huh. So he's kind of, it's very dark, actually, because, and this is, it's a very medieval mindset, which is that Jews are outside the power system, so that Jews who, uh, Jews who kind of communicate about Jews to the outside world are viewed as a threat. And the whole thing doesn't make sense in a Twitter age. Like if you are yourself broadcasting everything that you're doing on Twitter, then to describe a different member of your community as being like, as breaking the wall between yourself and the outside world is basically incoherent. But in, pr in the process of doing so, he doxed him, sent out his, uh, his home address and sent the crowds to mobilize outside his house with, uh, with coded death threats. So the, the journalist, this appears to be now okay. Um, Tischler ultimately got arrested for inciting a riot um, and is now back out on the street. Uh, and, and there are signs that actually the protests are picking up momentum, whereas they started as being a relatively small phenomenon, they're starting to pick up steam. So he sounds a, kind of like a Trumpy character, this guy, right? Extremely. Very pro-Trump. Talks about Trump all the time. Styles himself after Trump. I mean, that's you know? what I, that's yeah. what, that, that's, that's really what I was grasping on. Like, I mean, he sounds kind of like, like a, like a reality TV, like huckster, right? He is. And that's why 
that's why I think it's significant to not see them as anomalous in America, but actually they're like an ultra-Orthodox version of American politics right now and Trump politics. Uh, and the populism is just, it's just dripping from him uh, in, in the rhetoric and, the, and even the style of how he's talking about himself. But clearly he has um, enough people who seem to like his message in the ultra-Orthodox community. So there's, there's a broader set of grievances here. If we put aside Tischler as the individual, and I, I want to I want to ask you about this because one thing you say in your article is that um, American citizenship is about doing what's right for the broader community, and and part of that includes you know wearing a mask and being careful about COVID and making sure that you're not encouraging the spread and all of that. But from one thing I have heard from some some Jewish but also Catholic and 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 evangelical friends is this grievance, which I feel has been building and building during the COVID period, that religious communities have been targeted, especially in urban liberal centers like New York, New York City, where they're asking themselves, well, um, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the country are protesting against police brutality against Black Americans, and they're going out there and doing that outdoors, but when people want to hold religious gatherings or do religious services in an outdoor setting, they have been prevented um, from doing that. And also, um, I guess one of the grievances of the of some in the ultra orthodox community specifically is that playgrounds in those communities were closed down, um, even though we know the risk of transmission outdoors is is relatively low. And I think one thing that Heshi Tischler did, if 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 I recall, he he along with some um, local officials would go to these playgrounds and he would have a a bolt cutter and he would basically unilaterally with these people open up the playgrounds. Yeah. So I mean, how would you sort of respond to that that broader sense of grievance that? religious communities have been unfairly targeted. And even, you know, Mayor de Blasio in particular has been accused of scapegoating the Jewish community in New York. And he seems to bring them up quite a bit as people he thinks are are um, disproportionately responsible for not respecting COVID rules. So I, I do... I do blame the Blasio a bit in this for that, uh, for the for the rhetoric and symbolism around identifying these particular communities as being the source of the problem. I don't I don't think there's an unfair singling out in the sense that the rules are hard on everybody and they absolutely should apply to synagogue gatherings and weddings in the religious community as they should elsewhere. And, uh, and there's been a dance back and forth between where are the violations and therefore where do public officials call them out or where do public officials call them out and then in turn provide those communities with an opportunity to see themselves as having been victimized. So I think that there's just been a very bad dynamic throughout the pandemic between especially de Blasio in this community. And I think he's kind of, he's kind of brought it on. And I guess kind of from an ideas or an identity standpoint, what I think makes it more complicated is I think there is a kind of baked in, I don't know, it's like a secular hubris that de Blasio models in relationship to the religious community, a kind of unwillingness to, to see that when religious Jews talk about synagogue gatherings, it's not a social gathering. It's not extraneous in these communities. 
It's kind of at the core of an identity. It's the whole social fabric. So if you want to get these communities to stop gathering, you can't simply target them and say that it's a problem. You do have to work much more closely with the leadership. Now, to be clear, there is a lot of leadership in those communities that is trying to get the community, you know, the majority of ultra-Orthodox Jews are trying to go by the rules. But, um, but I think that there have been kind of some own goals by uh, by liberal and secular politicians to be unwilling to identify that this isn't it's not the same as other types of social gatherings. So, Yehuda, you know it's it's um it's really interesting to me, you know, reading your article, reading up about the the situation more broadly. Shadi and I were actually part of the genesis of the podcast. We were we were in Israel when when a friend of ours actually uh, recommended when we were just sort of yammering in the bus that we get a podcast. Um, it was Megan McArdle who was on the bus with us and said, "And here, here, Demir's trying to cancel me by saying that I was in Israel breaking uh, BDS." <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, Demir. <laughs> uh, the 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 um um one of the one of the the meetings we had there was with the uh, um, uh, this guy who was working with the uh, ultra orthodox community, and he was talking about basically you know the the challenges of the ultra orthodox within Israel, um, both uh, because he himself was uh, ultra orthodox and sort of had an insight into the community into the uh, challenges the community was facing, um, uh, you know, with the sort of influx of technology, what that was doing to a rising generation, the sort of cleavages that happened. And, you know, uh, maybe to connect that to one thing you said, but, you know, take it wherever you want with this, um, because I think it's a really rich topic. Um, One of the challenges, I think, more broadly in America – and I think, you know, uh, to pivot off your piece, I think it, it, it echoes perhaps through the ultra-Orthodox community as well, is where does – where do we get a leader like Trump or or like this sort of upstart populist guy who's running around like creating little mobs? seems to me like it's perhaps tied to some sort of disintermediation because I've read that too, that in fact the vast majority of the, the rabbis and the authorities uh, within the ultra-Orthodox community, within uh, – uh, in Brooklyn – uh, in New York, have have urged, in fact, exactly the language that you have used. Uh, it's not about rights. It's about responsibilities, community, all the rest of this. But at least to a, a large enough subset that it causes a problem, uh, it falls on deaf ears. Like it, it's an erosion of authority that is filled in by this kind of rabble rousing populism, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I guess. So if if it's a, if there's a disintermediation problem, I guess I'm trying to figure out based on your question, where does Trump fit in? Was he supposed because was he supposed to be intermediated? Right. What's the where? well? Yeah. Right. I mean, the, wouldn't 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 we say that? I mean, it's it's one of the one of the analyses of of uh, of of the rise of Trump is that that he came around when when basically the the whole concept of the Republican Party was already so hollow they couldn't stop him. And so already, you know, that there's like that that sort of that sense of of structure has already been hollowed out largely perhaps by the internet. The fact is Trump sailed into the Republican nomination basically on the back of Twitter, on the the back of his followings. He spent very little to do it and he understood the medium almost better than anyone. He was a product of the internet in ways that 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 few others were, right? Well, let me probe that if I can. Sure. It's not. Tr- I don't think he sailed in on the basis of his Twitter followers. Uh, the way I saw it was, his campaign starts with basically no budget, no system, no organized, no, no organization, uh, and a Twitter account. 
At the time uh, of his campaign, less than two, fewer than two percent of Americans were on Twitter. But every journalist in America sure, was on Twitter. Sure. So what what does Trump do? He goes after the journalists, and the response: the journalists keep amplifying Trump. So in that case, it's not a, it's not disintermediation. It's actually the inter, the 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 intermediaries in that case was media mm. were journalists, mm. and it wasn't that there weren't there. It's that it actually didn't serve their interests in all sorts of subtle ways to suppress this and to ignore it. It served their interest to actually amplify it because it was a fascinating and dark story. So you have to, I think we'd have to ask, like, it's not, are there no intermediaries anymore? It's who's benefit, who are the intermediaries? What are they doing and not doing as part of their responsibility? And what ways are they actually profiting uh, from this, from this kind of moment? So you don't think there's any parallel to, to, to get back to the, um, the ultra Orthodox in Brooklyn uh, technology sort of sapping away of authority. Is that a reality or am I misunderstanding? Yeah, no, it? I think, I think it, I think there is, I think you're right. I think, I think though the, the misunderstanding of the, of the ultra Orthodox community is the assumption that these traditional communities don't access technology and they a hundred percent do. And their leadership has a very hard time tamping it down. Right. Um, and, and as a result, it does dismantle the kind of formal structure of authority where leaders could just keep their people out of the streets. And it's possible to kind of an individual like this can mobilize with basically a Twitter account as a megaphone. Mm. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I, and you know, so I guess, I guess what I'm getting at there is though it's, it's, um, uh, you know, so, so you're writing this piece, uh, ultimately urging uh, this this ethic of, of responsibility rather than rights and and saying you know and that there's something deeply broken I mean you, you you're very much making the the parallel that you know it's it's this little uh, anecdote is an sort of a, a, a parable or it stands in for the much larger uh, dynamic in the rest of the country um, how do how w- apart from you know uh, people like you writers thinkers urging people to do it, um, how do we how do we reclaim leadership in these sorts of situations? Oh man, I mean, all right, should give it a shot. We'll we'll, we'll spitball it. I, there's no answer to this. I think. Look, we're in the we're in the same line of work, yeah. which is the business of ideas, and and I think we we probably share a theory that uh, that working in the realm of ideas matters in ways that probably we don't we can't fully understand. Uh, that you seed ideas into the public discourse. You write a you write an important book. You write a twelve hundred word opinion piece, and you hope that there is some cascade towards rational and reasonable people. It's really hard to see it in the short run. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt throughout the the uh, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, I realized yet last night that um, I have spent so much emotional energy over the last four years, assume, like hope, basically hoping that the politicians who I think are mishandling our country, Mitch McConnell and others, will just wake up and change. And it just doesn't happen in that kind of short term. It doesn't. So you can you kind of hope for it. And you know you know what? Maybe since we kind of stole the Merrick Garland seat, maybe we shouldn't do this. Mm. Um, it just won't happen. That's not how in, that's not how in, individuals operate. But it could be how societies operate. That over twenty and thirty year periods, uh, people making compelling cases for ideas actually can infiltrate and transform society. And I that it, that's why we play the long game in the world of ideas. And so, Yehuda, you must be, I don't know, um, how troubled are you by, I mean, you're, you're on Twitter to some extent, um, so you see what goes on online. I mean, from my standpoint, what I've seen the past couple of months, and I would say in particular the last month and a half, um, are after 
RBG passed the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, um, fears around Trump messing with the election and all that. There's been a rise of unreason, of of conspiratorial thinking, groupthink, I would say, on the left side of the spectrum that's intensified. And it's become uh, much harder, to put it mildly, to have a reasonable, reasoned debate online, on Twitter. And um, and I think that we as liberals, we we once contented ourselves with the notion that this kind of irrationality was on the far right fringe. But I think what we can see now is that everyone's kind of losing their mind. And some of that is is Trump's fault in the sense that he's a chaos agent. He poisons everything he touches. He brings out the worst in America and Americans of, of all sides, really, I would argue. I mean, are, are you, um, it, from what I recall when we... Uh, um, when we discussed some of these issues pre pre COVID, um, when we were on a panel together, that you're generally an optimistic person, and you have to be because you lead a major organization, so you have to sort of inspire the flock, so to speak. Um, I suppose, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, we're, we're, what's your level of optimism right now, or lack thereof? I, look, I'm an optimist by choice, which is, I think the alternative is worse. And, the, and, and pessimism is just, it's not, it's never falsifiable. So it, it's part of the same, th- I'm thinking about conspiracy theories. The minute you go down that, the, the route of conspiracy theory and you realize that you can't falsify a conspiracy theory because it could just mean that the theor- that, that the problem is darker. Um, that everything that presents itself as true is not really true. So I've, I've basically opted to, to try to not live in that space and to try to ask, how can I, how can I work towards improving the reality as opposed to just getting into kind of a spiral of, of feeling like it's something um, deeply broken. But I do, I do differentiate between optimistic and constructive. And I think actually constructive is more useful. Um, optimi- optimistic is like a theory that the world is going to get better. Well, you don't really know that. And you certainly don't know that that necessarily happens in the short run. You know, your Stephen Pinkers will argue that it's always getting better, but that you can't necessarily feel that in a 12 to 24 month period. Um, but constructive is quite different because constructive approach to the world says, yeah, there's a lot of brokenness, but like, how do I, how do I do something with this? How do I try to be part of fixing something? Um, and I, I, the, I gotta tell you the conspiracy theory thing is really tempting. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's really tempting because when you feel powerless in a particular moment, then you'd rather conspiracy theories create order for people. Like there, I can, I can, oh, it must be, there's an invisible something I can't see that's controlling this. And that is, it's a search for order. And I think that's really tempting. It's much harder to actually face something that feels very broken and try to ask, okay, how do I make sense of it and feel a little bit lost when you can't. So, you know, the, the, to, I guess, push again on, on this question of, of leadership and, and community again, you know, I think the, the really correct and, uh, I'd say powerful element in your essay is the diagnosis that something pretty profound is broken. And that's what I was asking, you know, I mean, like, yes, obviously the role of ideas and, and exhortation to sanity and to, to community. And I think leadership is, is critical to this. Um, but again, you know, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily, I, I take your point about optimism and pessimism and that pessimism is un, unfalsifiable and, 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 you know, grant you all that. 
But it's not conspiratorial to take a step back and look at all of what's happening in the United States and and be worried, as you are, I think, in your piece, and still sort of say that, you know, there's something there's something eroding about our 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 core common identity. I mean, would you agree with that? And and how worried are you about that specific thing? I yeah, I am very worried about it to the extent that it doesn't become silly. In other words, that there I'm, what I'm more I'm I'm aware that there's something really different about being an American in 2020 than there was being an American in 1960, where you know po- the post-war kind of consensus, the existence of a common enemy for America, all of those things enable a kind of pluralism and liberalism that is basically in, in the interest of the common good. You see pro- you progress on a certain set of progressive fronts, um, a basically healthy economy. And I, we, there's no question we're seeing a dismantling of that. We're living through it. I do a lot of my work in the Jewish community where I've been asking the question, why was pluralism such an important Jewish value in Jewish communal life in the late 20th century? and seems to have basically disappeared by the early part of the 21st century. And I think you can, there's a lot of people to blame. And it's basically, it's kind of what you're talking about. There's something eroding uh, as part of the common good. Now, there's a version of that critique which becomes a little silly, where you start becoming nostalgia for America in the 1950s and 1960s, as though though there weren't a lot of brokennesses being papered over. Um, Or that you're dreaming for a Cold War again, because then at least it gives Americans a common enemy on the other end. So there's something a little bit silly about it, but I I do think that I, I do. I share with you. I think with both of you um, that instead of being nostalgic, there is a constructive project which tries to ask how do you how do you scale back some of the um, social and ideological extremes that are that are fueling a fire that ultimately results in a kind of brokenness that all of us feel all the time. Okay, so. Um... You guys both alluded to it, so I'm gonna have to go here. So let's let's kind of up the ante a little bit. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so um, this is something that's been percolating in my mind, and and our our friend Jamie Kerchick, who was on the episode a couple of months back, he did talk about this a little bit, and he's written about it for Tablet a couple times, and now. Um, Barry Weiss has, I think, crystallized the argument. And I don't know, Yehuda, if this is sort of what you had in mind or part of it. But basically, just to summarize for our listeners, because it it does get to this question of the relationship between American Jewish identity and the idea of liberalism and pluralism that we thought was there in America that seems to be eroding, as both of you have said. But basically, the argument is that Now that liberalism, and by this I mean um, more the classical liberal tradition of having a free marketplace of ideas and judging things by the content of the idea rather than the speaker of the idea, that these were all parts of the American idea that – American Jews writ large, but also I would say other minority communities and children of immigrants and so on believed in, and it's sort of intertwined with the the American dream, the American idea. It can tend to be, be a little bit banal and cliched and idealistic. But the argument, I guess, here is that um, American Jews were able to thrive because of this liberal culture of free expression, free inquiry, of unfettered pluralism, and that now that this liberal context is 
suffering or declining. And Barry Weiss's argument is that there's a is that there's a new ideology taking its place, and others uh, like you know Wesley Yang have said this that there's a successor ideology that is anti-liberal, that is based on things like critical race theory and wokeness writ large. And, you know, as our reader, as our listeners and readers will know, wokeness is something that we've talked about uh, quite a bit, for better or worse, that the rise of wokeness will end up hurting Jews. That is maybe a simplification of the argument. And I'll maybe just quote one thing that struck me from from Barry's piece, and we'll include this in the show notes. The, the, the piece is called Stop Being Shocked. And so she says, for example, quote unquote, it is not by chance that Jews thrived in a world in which liberalism prevailed. And she quotes um, a young Jewish student at GW who says, Jews defy anti-racist ideology simply by existing. So it's not so much that Zionism is racism, it's that Jewishness is. Um, So on and so forth. Uh, and also, I think there's also a theological argument that central to Jewish monotheism, which you could also extend to Islam and even Christianity, is that the idea that we are all equal in the eyes of God and that our accidents of birth, what race or, you know, whether you were born white, whatever it might be, that there's no inherent sin in being born white because we're all equal in the eyes of God. So this idea that we're basically sorting people based on how much they're oppressed is counter to God's plan and and the, the monotheistic idea. And Jews end up on the wrong side of that because now they're being lumped in with whiteness because they are seen as having disproportionate privilege. And Demir, you may have heard me mention this before, but I think I, I think I mentioned this friend of mine who, when I was saying that um, the whole idea that there there were too many white males running for um, the presidency on the Democratic side was odd because one of those people, Bernie Sanders, would have been the first Jewish president in American history. And I told that to, to, to my friend and she's like, what? Wait, Bernie Sanders is Jewish? And I know it sounds crazy. But she couldn't believe it because she had just assumed that Bernie Sanders was another white male. And I think that's a broader stand-in for how this problematic development where Jews are no longer seen as a minority, they're seen as a privileged elite that is part of the problem. I know there's a lot there. (laughs) I just wanted to lay it all out. Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So here's my my challenge. So I identify with aspects of the critique, uh, in particular where we started, which is, I think it's true descriptively that Jews thrived in America in the second half of the 20th century, in part because American Jews styled a form of American Jewish liberalism that worked really well with where America was. And so it's not surprising that as America shifts, that creates totally different expressions of Jewishness, uh, including pro-Trump Jewishness, like we talked about before, and woke Jewishness, as we're talking about now. And the people who represented the traditional kind of structures of power defining the community agenda in kind of the liberal center are feeling really squeezed. I think that's descriptively true. So the question becomes, like, how um, how does liberalism here inside the Jewish community, but also in America, kind of fight back for its for itself? 
and the, here's the, here are the things that there were three aspects of, of Barry's piece that I was um, really troubled by. One of which was, okay, let's say you're uh, a serious classical liberal and somebody comes along with a set of ideas and the, I, I, the, the book that she kind of takes on as being emblematic of the problem is Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. So here's like a, a progressive critique to your liberalism. How do you take it on? Well, the liberal response is to write a book review. <laughs> the liberal response is not to now claim that that idea, that those ideas are dangerous and don't belong in the public square. Because by doing that, it's actually taking a page out of wokeness connected to um, Jonathan Haidt's book on uh, what's it called? The, the, cod- the Righteous the cod- Mind? No, The Coddling of, oh, the, coddling American of the American Mind. Mind. Yep. Where he argues that one of the things that's gone wrong is that we've we've we have uh, in, we have animated ideas as being actually dangerous, uh, and we use the language of dangerous ideas, and that's what gave rise to uh, trigger warnings and so forth. So, but Barry's basically doing the same thing to anti-racism and to wokeness. She's turning it into being a discourse that's actually violent and dangerous to people, instead of the classical liberal response, which is to say, "Great, it's an open public square." You have a different theory and argument about America, its history, its past, and its future, and it's our job to now engage with it seriously, argue with it, and tell you that it's wrong. So that feels like, um, uh, yeah, let me start there. I, like, why, why not, if you're, you know, I, I know, Shadi, you've written about this a lot. Like, if you're, if you're scared, if you don't like the ideas of wokeness, if you don't like the, because there is a kind of coherent vision like it or not, that the progressives are advancing about American history and American politics, instead of being feeling endangered by it or threatened by it, why not actually to be liberals is to be bigger. Well, so <laughs> before Shadi jumps in on this, I, you know, let me just again, because I, I think it, it gets at the, the, the core question. Um, you know, again, I just to, to bracket my point here, I, I come from the Balkans. Uh, I was born there. Um, I came to the States early, lived my, my whole life here. So, But at the same time, always going back there. And, you know, my whole sort of thing is has always been that I feel that I've I – guess, I guess one way to put it is I've, I've felt how, how both powerful and well-constructed but still constructed the whole sort of American experience is – you know this this its belief system. It's a very, I think, coherent belief system that 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 uh, worked remarkably well. And so, while actually, Yehuda, I'm a hundred percent with you. And I, Shadi and I, when we've gone back and forth on this, ultimately, I, I I end up shrugging about wokeism a lot more than Shadi does because you know exactly as you put it. It's just another set of ideas. Go yell at them. This is what's actually happening right now. In fact. Uh, you know, there's a that 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 open letter, and then you know, Ibram uh, Kendi gets a gets a, a, a high ranking uh, position at Boston University. Fine, no no big deal. Um, but the interesting thing is is this where where it gets muddy, and I think again, your article gets at the at the sort of core of this is that at the same time, wokeism is. Both sort of epiphenomenal of what's happening more broadly, this, you know, uh, erosion of a common thing. And especially because as an ideology, I don't, I don't even want to call it an ideology, as an approach, as a, as a sensibility, it is anti, you know, it's, it's not constructive. It's deconstructive in a lot of ways, right? I mean, to, to, to get sort of wonky about it. It's, it's not, it's not trying to create uh, uh, 
a common purpose, that, that, you know, a common sense of obligation, a common sense of community. And for that reason, at least, I think that, 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 that's the part where at least I understand where, uh, Shadi and Barry to a certain extent are, are coming from on this sort of stuff because it represents a kind of assault on this. I personally don't think it's fatal. Maybe I'm being optimistic here, which is very odd for a dour Slav to do, but, but, but it's, it's, um, um, it feels to me like exactly, exactly as you said, it's, it's how we should deal with it, but maybe you can just sort of, uh, react to the question of the content of what what the uh, you know the sort of woke approach. I, I don't like the successor ideology, but the woke approach to things. Uh, how 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 good or bad is it? Uh, you know, balance those for me a little bit. So so I'll say per- first of all personally, I I don't know I don't know if I buy yet the the new anti-racist approach to education, which kind of takes for granted or assumes that everything is laced with racism and you have to consciously and actively dismantle it all the time. I'm not inclined to believe that because it does feel a little bit like a totalitarian ideology, but am I sometimes a little bit racist? Yes. (laughs) Um, Can I think about the times in my past when I have said or thought things that I now look back and say, you know, maybe some of that was more baked into the society, into my own society, my upbringing, my background or my instincts than I like to give myself credit for. And and the reason I, the reason I'm starting there is because I don't want to grant, I'm part of what makes me, part of what concerns me here is that when we when we erect it as a successor ideology, when you say this is a, a, an ideology because we're we're because we're scared of totalitarian ideologies, we're actually giving it we're 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 giving it the oxygen it needs to actually become a successor ideology. And I just I I, I don't know if this is I'm not if I'm still evading your question, but I'm trying to basically say where are there things that come out of the progressive world, and where are there where are there critiques that come out of the neoconservative world that require me to think. And to take a little bit and, and to think that my job is still to construct, um, is to not assume that like that American liberalism requires a successor ideology. It actually requires people who are willing to commit to be part of it. And this, the thing that I'm nervous about is that we in this camp of liberals are basically spending all of our time policing the boundaries of liberalism and predicting our own demise and being really upset at those who are coming along and claiming kind of protecting our space, that there's not a lot of constructive liberal work that's actually taking place. Well, so on this point, like, uh, well, first of all, I guess like Barry is writing a review about it in tablet, which I guess is like kind of liberal that you're just writing against it. I mean, she's not like trying to ban anything, but, um, but I guess like there's sort of an asymmetry here that I worry about because um, and I can only speak for myself here. I have been vocal about saying that I don't want, quote unquote, woke people to be canceled anywhere. I want the unwoke and the woke to coexist in major institutions. And that to me is what pluralism is about, that there shouldn't be this kind of zero sum situation where one side tries to root out the other like it's some intra left civil war. And that's what I believe. Like, I've never thought to myself, like, oh, I wish we could get rid of woke people at whatever institution I'm writing for or part of. And it's worth noting that Ibram Kendi is a contributing writer at The Atlantic, as am I. It would never occur to me to advocate that he no longer be a contributing writer at The Atlantic. 
I disagree with his ideas, but he's an important voice and, it, and his voice should be part of the public debate. But I worry, and this is not about Kendi specific because I don't actually know what his position is on this, but when I see other woke folks who essentially are arguing that I I shouldn't have a place in this debate because I am bad, there's an asymmetry there because I'm more tolerant of them than they are of me. I mean, that's one thing that I would say. Um, but I guess I guess it's also it's also to say that woke ideas are part of the American future. They're not going to be defeated. I don't want to defeat them. I don't want to defeat their ideas. I just want their ideas to not defeat everything else. And this gets me maybe to one thing I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on Yehuda is if if the if the goal here is to engage constructively with anti-racism or woke advocacy whatever term and some are more pejorative and some are more positive if we want to engage with these new ideas constructively how can we do so in a way that doesn't come at the expense of american jews like if that is a relevant um and reasonable fear that some american jews have that they don't have a place in this new america that's being built in mainstream left institutions um what should we say to them so i so i think this is a critical question i think it's it's not by declaring war on wokeness that i think is the exact problem because first of all you said you know you said um it's an is it's there's an asymmetry, right? They they're trying to get us fired, but we're not trying to get them fired. Well, first of all, that's that's the problem of being a pluralist. <laughs> you have a wider sense of the tent than your critics, but that and we have to kind of accept that. I would love to see the response not be here's let's condemn this as a successor ideology because all that does is it bakes into the to the pro to the progressives who read this that basically the organized Jewish community is, is the enemy of progressive ideas and ideals. It, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it, it strengthens the quality of that ideology. And if you look at like, you know, though there's so much writing has, has gone into the, what happened at the women's March, for instance. Well, the public version of this was like a, was a battle between the founders of the women's March, Sarsour and Mallory and others, and basically everybody who felt like there was something anti-Semitic going on. And that was the public story. But in the meantime, over the last couple of years, they replaced the board, they replaced the staff, they engaged in some very deep dialogue. Once they sidelined those 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 leaders of the movement, engaged in some really productive dialogue where they got into much further inreach to the organized Jewish community and to people who were really skeptical about the agenda of the Women's March as it related to, to Jews and specifically Israel-Palestine, uh, and managed to actually kind of, it's not solved for, but it's a much healthier version of how do you have a conversation between progressive values and Jewish interests. And I don't see, that's like, that's a classic way why, by which the Jewish community used a liberal strategy to tamp down its um, its existential enemies. It did so in dialogue with them, in relationship with them. It stayed in the room. All those classic tools of community relations and community building. And that's why I'm, that's partly why I'm actually nervous that the accusation that progressivism is going to be or already is inherently anti-Semitic, all it does is it basically allows that to become true. You know, I, 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 I like that a lot. One of my sort of, again, intuitions rather than convictions is, is you know, there's something about America that, that allows for the sort of uh, 
call it infinite reinvention. And I think part of the process you just de- you described right there, one way to talk about it is is this is how democratic politics and civil society works, right? I mean that that is sort of what 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 you said there. But again, you know, you, you said like last time, like you don't know if you evaded my question. I, I feel like you kind of did because here, 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 here's, here's what I what I want to get at. Um, you know, and I, I think you're 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 uniquely positioned, not really well positioned to to talk about this because something Shadi and I talk about. Again, I haven't also listened to your podcast, but and I will. Uh, but it's it really gets down to the question of identity and the 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 role. Let's call it of of narratives. Myths myths makes it sound like you're talking about, you know, Greek gods or something like that it's so it's dismissive. But narrative is really important. About stories we tell it, uh, ourselves, we tell our children, we tell our families, we tell our communities about what's happening. And right? And one of the one of the the great strengths uh about the Jewish community throughout the centuries has been the ability uh for narrative it, it's it's at the core in many ways right of 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 judaism that mm-hmm. that that and so again let me push you on that it's i i as i said earlier i i'm against this idea of successor ideology i think it gives it too much credit um i think it's a it's it's a it's a spasm of all sorts of things that's coming through and i i i believe it'll probably be either uh incorporated or you know discarded over time Whatever, it'll leave traces. But the interesting thing to me, again, gets back to your piece about what's broken, about uh, our common purpose, our common sense of identity, and just maybe want to push you on that, the extent to which the deconstructive approach, which is, this is a, it's, 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 uh, it's a set of ideas that has uh, drunk deeply from the sort of postmodernist approach like 68ers, French philosophers, all of that. Maybe that's overstating it a bit, but I mean, it's it's there in the water. You can kind of taste it. I mean, this is my misspent youth was undergraduate in philosophy. And mm-hmm. in the 1990s, this is, this is what they were feeding us in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I mean, can you talk about that? Like, is there, is there something not unhealthy, but you know, I guess what, what, I, again, I thought you put it very nicely. That I think the Cold War and the 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 circumstances that allowed liberalism—let's not even use the L word—but allowed America as as this sort of cohesive thing that, of course, had its warts and repressions. And don't want to downplay any of that. Like again, it's as you said, uh, 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 it's it's worse than silly to be sort of yar- uh, yearning back for some for some time, which was not really a golden age. Yet still. The the curious thing about America is that maybe the exceptional thing about America is how it makes this pluralism work. And underlying it is a certain kind of sense of narrative about common purpose. And are you concerned at all that there's a move, a trend um, to, again, sort of subdivide without replacing the subdivisions with anything? Yes, I am concerned, and I, uh, this is the thing that I go to sleep and wake up every day thinking about in my work, because as an organization that's committed to Jewish pluralism, that is to say, built, maintaining a relationship between Jews uh, and also between Jews and people of other faiths, as an organization that's committed to like 
keeping a relationship between American Jews and Israel, in spite of the fact that we're pulling in a lot of different directions for good reasons. Um, I care about this a lot, and I am I'm really nervous about it. And I see it in my own institution, an institution that's committed to pluralism that actually has more and more anti-pluralists in it because they're the product of a different, um, of the same intellectual ancestry you're talking about. But, uh, but with, with that concern, you know, on, on my podcast a couple weeks ago, I, I talked to Dahlia Lithwick uh, from Slate about, it was right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and it, it was an incredible conversation. It had the quality of a Shiva visit <laughs> where we were like mourning a relative. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, let's like take take Ginsburg, take two aspects, well-known aspects of Ginsburg life and work, and together they kind of symbolize 20th century Judaism and 20th century America. On one hand is the Ledbetter case, equal pay, where she just slow and steady writes the dissent and builds the momentum towards social change. It's like a progressive vision of America. Amazing. And you could tie it to all of the Jewish values that I care about a lot. Like, are you on the right side of history and the right side of justice? Mm. And the other is her friendship with Scalia. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys saw today, but, you know, Diane Feinstein at the end of the hearing got up and hugged Lindsey Graham. Mm. And Whoa. Twitter Twitter went bonkers. Progressive Twitter went bonkers because it's like, what the hell was that? She gave a speech saying this was the best it's a confirmation hearing we've had in a long time. It's the model. And oh, I she, totally she, missed that. No, it's, it's <laughs> insane. Um, but, but with Ginsburg, I guess – I guess what I guess what we're I think circling around is I don't think you can set those are both parts of the package of Ginsburg's Judaism <laughs> that she was both a passionate advocate for progressive change and she was friends with Scalia and they loved the opera and and I think it's really interesting to watch progressives trying to like dismantle that piece of her mm. And use that as like a knock against her or like, let's conveniently forget that she actually had a, a wider notion of shared humanity and civility um, than we do. And I would, I, I guess, as hard as it is to say, I also don't want Dan Feinstein hugging Lindsey Graham right now. But but I think that that's, I, I, think, it, I think it would be useful for us to think um, in response to the rise of the type of um, progressive totalitarianism you're talking about, to try to think about um, the the values that are embedded in what in what's there, and the values that are embedded in being a good person in a civil society who respects your opponents, and to try to make sure that those continue to travel together, uh, and not to allow them to basically be thought of. That's what that's the cleavage here between progressivism and liberalism is progressivism is focused, laser focused on the moral concerns that it's scared, that it's passionate about. And liberals are nervous about continuing to get along with each other. And I think that that compromises liberalism. So speaking of cleavages, and I want to shift gears in our kind of final 10 minutes or so and talk about something which we've mentioned twice, but only in passing. You, do, you know, do you know what I'm referring to? No. No, no, Yehuda. I asked Yehuda, not you, Demir. I don't either. (laughs) Is that the controversy of Bon Appetit? Because I have a lot to say about that. (laughs) Uh, No, but uh, no, you know, Israel. Yeah. The best Uh, topic. (laughs) Go for it, Shadi. Go. I'm I'm sure it's going to go great. Go for it. So, okay, the one thing that I disagree with – disagree on with with Barry Weiss is is on Israel. This is where we part ways. And I part ways with um, a lot of fellow, some of my fellow travelers on Twitter where we're critical of wokeness, but they tend to be 
pro-Israel. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm pro-Israel in some vague sense because I believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state, which is cancelable on sort of my side of the spectrum. And that's been like an internal thing among Muslims and Arabs and, and whatever. But putting that aside and, and for... just, by the way, just saying yeah. that, I think you could get a membership in my synagogue now. <laughs> no, oh my God. Wow. Wow. I'm in trouble. For anyone who got to minute 50 of this, um, yeah. I'm going to have to answer for this. But... Um, but I, I mean, I, I was, I, I have been very critical of the so-called peace deals uh, between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain. Um, I am definitely, I definitely see myself as being on the explicitly pro-Palestine side of this, a lot of these debates. And I actually welcome the fact that um, progressives, the Democratic Party and the left more generally has moved in a direction that, you know, takes Palestinian rights more seriously and is more critical of the Israeli occupation, so on and so forth. Barry seems to think that this is part of a broader set of problems that is an effectively anti-Semitic. There's a lot to unpack. I know we don't have so much time to unpack all of the all of these strands, but I'm curious um, and Yoda, we should mention that you, your your organization does a lot of work um, with Muslim communities and Muslim organizations. You've come under quite a bit of criticism for for that work. Is that fair to say? Oh yes, well, on mo- both I sides mean, or one side in particular. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, the criticism is really only from the the left end of the Muslim community and their allies in the Jewish community, but it's not. Okay. It's not from, yeah, that's the criticism has mostly been of the Muslim participants who have come in Shalom Hartman Institute programs. Yes, Much less yeah, than that's my sense. Yeah. That's my sense as well. Um, so as someone who's engaged on this and you have to kind of um, do a delicate dance on some of these issues, I mean, what what would you say, like, where, where does Israel fit into, fit into this? Yeah, I, so a couple things. One is... Um, Almost every, basically everything you said, Shadi, about your own politics vis-a-vis Israel, Democratic Party, I share. I'm left. I, I'm on left side of the Jewish community with respect to Israel, Palestine. It's part of my DNA. My father was part of the negotiating team of Oslo and Madrid. Um, like I interviewed Hanana Shrawi for my high school newspaper. Um, those are just oh. that's my that's my bona fides right there. Um, <laughs> cool. Okay. For this conversation, so I, like I grew up with. I grew up as kind of a pro-Israeli-Palestinian peace process um, member of the Jewish community. Um, and I've always been, I've identified as being criti- publicly critical in the Jewish community, especially of, of the occupation and of particular the drift by American politicians away from prioritizing a negotiated agreement between Israeli-Palestinians as an American interest that's in the interest of both parties. So I'm totally, I'm with you there. Um, I think there's two issues at play on this. One is... Um, one is I think that this is a weakness of, again, of Barry Weiss's and some of her ideological kin's position, which is by the, by extension of the same commitment to open, open dialogue and the liberal approach towards public discourse, you can't be in the business of shutting down positions on Israel-Palestine that you find problematic. And there is quite a bit of inconsistency in the cancel culture business of government you know, complaining of being canceled for being a Zionist, but also actively involved in what I think are kind of canceling activities that come with people who are anti-Zionist or pro-Palestinian. So I think, I think you can't have it both ways. Um, 
I will say in the in the context of our work, this is it is harder and harder. And I what my real concern is on my real concern on the right side is very obvious. I think uh, I think the Trump administration has been downright cynical in its in its treatment of uh, Israel policy. I think it has been exploitative and opportunistic. It has very little to do with the Jewish community. It's almost all about evangelicals, and they're benefiting in a weird way from Jews who I think are being naive about. Um, "Quote unquote pro-Israel policy that's actually not in the interest of Israel, Palestine, or uh, or America itself. But I am concerned that as you're going to see a, a pushback in um, in in a democratic administration, that it's going to be silly decisions. For instance, I think it's bad U.S. policy to tie foreign aid to Israel to uh, to occupation policy." I think it's bad policy. It's inconsistent with where that foreign aid came from, which was that it was all built in order to incentivize peace agreements. So to now turn it into a stick as opposed to a carrot, I think it's bad policy. And all that will do is alienate larger sectors of the Jewish community who are ready to come back to the Democratic Party. So I, I my my real concern is that the that by allowing it's one th- it's it's i'm i'm with you to say we need a far more nuanced relationship to the israel palestine palestine conversation in the jewish community in the muslim community and spaces in between in american policy i just don't want it to become a football where if the trump administration did it this way everything we now have to do everything we should be doing is, is the basically opposite. the opposite i think it's going to be right. bad news yeah i mean i think that's going to be an interesting thing that's what i'm watching with the you know the 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 biden um uh Again, I'm, I'm assuming here that Biden's going to win. Um, that that you know, I think that's one of the the things that that the Biden team's going to come in on a broad swath of foreign policy decisions with that being their instinct. But I think reality will will sort of reassert itself there. Can I ask you one question though? Again, on the the sort of the the I, I saw you. We had Peter Beinart on to, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, maybe no, my, months, 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 maybe months. <laughs> uh, it's COVID. It's all. It's all a continuum. Yeah, it was right after his controversial um, essay came out. And Yehuda, you you wrote a, a an article in Tablet, uh, you know, uh, arguing against or you know uh, taking issue with yeah. how 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 Peter uh, framed a lot of that. You know, Shadi and I sort of. We, we wrote a little debate about it afterwards and, you know, we did a, a, a special episode just sort of chewing over that episode. And, and you know, it's my impression – and this is someone who is not Jewish and doesn't follow these issues super, super closely. But I, I, I took Peter as – I, I don't want to say this in a way that's, that's uh, uh, uncharitable and it makes it sound too opportunistic. But I feel like he, he's, he's moved by – the context, the broader political context in the United States, which includes, I think, um, uh, the sort of broader progressive sensibility that led him to this kind of view. Is that correct, do you think? Or that's not how you would read it? Yeah, I think that's 100% true. I think the consensus has shifted among the progressive side of the Democratic Party. You're allowed to say things today that you wouldn't have been able to say 10 years ago. Even Peter's own writing has shifted um, as a result. I think he would argue that it came out, came by it honestly. Yes, he did um, argue, in fact. <laughs> um, right. I, I think, and I, I, but I think you, you don't, nobody really steps out that far and takes a position unless they feel that there's enough, uh, enough room to carry them. And I think, you know, it's small, it's small potatoes right now, but like there's a new progressive magazine in the Jewish community called Jewish currents mm-hmm. who he writes for, and he sits on their board. And I think that there's, um, there's, there's an, a play for long-term momentum. You'll notice that Peter always uses the terminology of like 
the the Jews of the future, mm. the young people of the future, that's a contested claim. Yeah. <laughs> it's not true. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. But if you argue that the future is with you, you can start making the claim that you don't want to be on the right side of history. And as, as I wrote in my response to his piece, um, I, I just the the idea that we're going to go back and relitigate the political identity of a nation state founded in the 1940s by retrieving versions of that nation state <laughs> that were discarded yeah. is it's it's not just naive it's um i find it really disrespects history mm. and it and it disrespects the work of okay there were reasons maybe maybe we should have done the binational approach in the 1930s but we didn't and you now have almost zero people between the river and the sea who want to like tear everything down and start again and to do so together. And there's some, there's something very dangerous about, you know, 7,000 miles away saying, let me, let me as a thought exercise, uh, redesign the most contentious uh, piece of property in the world. Well, you know, and we sort of talked to him about this on, on that episode where it sounded to me, and I think this is the whole point of the one state solution as as something to advocate, it's not actually meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be used as a cudgel to pressure Israel or American Jews or whoever, and to say, look, if you if you don't make concessions, if you don't make serious compromises, this is what is awaiting you. So when I try to understand what Peter is trying to do here, I understand it in that spirit. And one can say that that's not a great thing to do or it's cynical or whatever it might be. But what? how do you feel about this idea of one state as a warning? I don't, first of all, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that's what looms. I think any version of one state that is, that, that looms is going to be much worse than the one that's here. Um, so I, I don't, I don't buy that this is exactly what's going to happen. I also don't put a lot of stock into, unless we change this, we know exactly what the future is going to look like in 50 years. But the, but the bigger piece here, and it goes back to what you raised initially uh, around, around Israel and the Jewish community. And this is one of the things that I, that the, we, we created our, our conversations with Muslim Americans to talk about was, I'm not sure, even Peter's piece, I'm not sure people have taken seriously enough that the condition of the Jewish people was transformed by the creation of the state of Israel. Uh, it's not the same religion 70 years on. It really isn't because a, have a nation state in which basically half the world's Jews live fundamentally changes the, the Jewish people from being a diasporic people, an exilic people, into a people that also has a deep connection to land, homeland, that believes that it's the, the transformation in the world that keeps the Jewish people most safe and most alive, that becomes a, a, a font for Jewish culture and language in all sorts of ways. And and I I felt that in this notion of like, if you don't radically change this project in order to anticipate a future, it just... it. <laughs> it kind of naively assumes that like, oh, we'll be able to kind of flip the switch and go back to a different Judaism or a different people. And that to me feels just really broken. I, when we, when I, when I talk to Muslim leaders at the core of this is you don't have to like the state of Israel. You certainly have to agree with its policies because I don't agree with a lot of its policies. Also, you just have to take seriously that the Jewish people are a different people because of the state. And if you really want to talk to the majority of world Jews, it's going to have to be through a, a conversation about Israel and not in avoidance of a conversation on Israel. 
Yeah, so right now, hearing you talk, Yehuda, I'm fantasizing about a debate on wisdom of crowds between you and Peter Beinard. Maybe one day we can bring you together. I would, I would be really curious to hear how he would respond to some of what you're saying. But putting that aside for a second, you, you did mention Muslim leaders, and I, I don't want to let you go without... Um, and maybe we could even have you, you know, another time in the future to reflect a little bit more on this, because it is a big controversy in, quote unquote, my community, the Muslim community, where we've had major divisions um, around this question of engaging with so-called uh, Zionist institutions, where some people say that young Muslim leaders who take part in, in your organization's activities are doing something bad. I think that's a really problematic um, position on their part, but it is a debate that's ongoing. I I'm just curious, like you've been at the center of this and that's not something you want. You don't want to be a lightning rod in the Muslim community, I presume. That's not really your thing. But in some ways you found that your organization has become that to some extent, some of the time. Is that weird for you? Yeah, it's super weird. Uh, it's weird because we got, you know, we 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 navigate intra-Jewish communal tensions all the time. And then we got this front row seat into a different minority religious community in America and their fighting. And it both made us feel good about our fights. But, uh, but it also kind of helped us recognize some of the similar dynamics that we have to struggle with. Uh, it's not been pleasant. I, I really do feel, though I, our institution has not suffered for it, but I do really feel quite bad for for the people in the Muslim community who came with really good faith, who, um, who understood that we were not proselytizing them. This was not an advocacy program. We wanted to talk to them who under, who saw, you know, none of our critics actually saw the program. They saw, mm. they used, they said they litmus tested us with funders. They said, if you take money from that person, that makes you bad. And we said to them, that's, you know, if you never saw the program, if you never even saw a schedule, you can't make that claim. And, and in contrast, what we tried to provide to the participants in our program was a firsthand view into how Jews argue about our issues. And that was a gift to them. Um, we did not, there was no monolithic curriculum. Uh, uh, my colleagues and I who see the world really differently oftentimes presented uh, our perspectives in tension with each other without trying to create some sort of kind of sort of reconciliation. And it is an example of what we were talking about earlier of the difference between a liberal orientation and progressive orientation of the willingness mm. to willingness to engage with ideas without fear versus the belief that because of a person's identity, um, they, they are fundamentally bad. And it's, it's the difference also between BDS, which I don't agree with BDS. I don't subscribe to it. I don't have a, philosophical problem with boycotting a country. I don't. But there's a big difference between BDS and anti-normalization. And anti-normalization and the claim that just talking to an Israeli or talking to a Zionist fundamentally compromises you, I find to be so dehumanizing that it's an it's a completely immoral position. That that's at the 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 core of the worry. I mean, you know, I we could really go on with this for for another half hour, I'm sure. But it's at the core of the the concern about the progressive left, though, right? I mean, I can at least I think we can agree on that. That that while I don't think that it's 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 rising to the level of you know totalitarian threat, it's it's the essence of that 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 you know that as you said the it's an unpleasant situation to be to have to confront this kind of stuff. But that's coming from 
right, Shadi, the left of the the left activist part of the Muslim community that is yep. really doing that. And similarly, you know, uh, Peter Beinart's claims to you know be speaking for the the, the future of American Jewry and in, in sort of contradistinction to Israelis who. In, in a weird way, he seems to imply, you know, can't see this and need to be shown. This is also coming from a place on, on this sort of left. Um, and I mean, you, yeah. you said that this is that what worries you. But I mean, you know, all I'm trying to get at here as we sort of wind up is that, you know, I, I'm I'm with you, Yehuda, very, very much about not taking the stance that, you know, this is some kind of like big ideological struggle. And I'm with you that the liberal approach of dialogue and 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 um, doing this and in, in the face of it and knowing that your position is one of, you know, a broader position and therefore more vulnerable and you just have to take it and just keep going because it leads to better outcomes. I think that's all correct. But again, it's that it's that question of of the core of of what we're up against. I, I feel like it can be, you know, uh, properly assimilated in the liberal sort of system. But there is something troubling about it. Yeah. There is something troubling, and it's unpleasant to go through it. I just still think that that we need a lot more data to make the claim that this is really dismantling our country. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, even going back to Kendi, like my synagogue, this upper middle class white synagogue in Riverdale in New York, which, by the way, is a Jewish community that exists because of white flight. Mm-hmm. Um, so their synagogue book club this summer read Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. That, that's not hurting anybody. <laughs> that's actually great. I'm glad that that the synagogue book club is reading at this summer. So until, until and unless you see really a mass movement of everybody who connects with these ideas becoming the people who are driving an agenda of mass cancer, cancel culture, I, I'm a little, I feel that there's a little bit of like taking anecdata from a few places and then turning it into a grand theory of something, of something that's out there. I, again, I'm not making light of the attacks on my own organization, which have been really painful. I'm not making light on people getting fired from publications, which is really quite difficult. It's not that there isn't this stuff out there. I just think, um, I just think that the work is bigger than simply constructing a, a wall against that. I think, I think that there's a business of persuasion that that's part of this work too. And Yehuda, what you said earlier, uh, just a, a minute ago, I mean, when you put it, you put it so starkly, and, and it's a reminder to me when you say that people can, um, just by talking to an Israeli, they can be deplatformed. That's something that people, some folks um, advocate in various communities, including the Muslim community. It's just a reminder of how absurd it is when you actually lay it out, ver- like, you just stated what the actual position is, and it seems obvious by any set of universal principles that punishing someone based on the fact that they were born in a country, which presumably you know most Israelis didn't have con- control over being born there. Um, I mean, there's something really intensely problematic about it. Um, and I guess I don't really have, a, it's not a question, it's just a comment and I just felt like it was worth reiterating. It is, it's pretty absurd, right? It's not just absurd, but it also, you know, Palestinians had mixed feelings, have mixed feelings about our program, but we always have Palestinian leaders who want to meet with our groups when they're there because they may not love the program for some of them like it, some of them don't, but they know that the pathway to their own liberation lies with Israelis. They know it and they don't want an American, uh, a set of American Muslim allies who 
who will never engage with or understand the very people who Palestinians have to live with and whose freedom and security is being controlled, is being controlled by. So they, they like, you have this weird situation where Palestinians and Israelis interact all the time on unofficial and unofficial levels. But if American allies of Palestinians refuse to engage at all with Israelis, they can't even identify with the very people who they're trying to help and support. Exactly. And I think um, that's probably a good note to end on. <laughs> so I'll just say, I mean, this was great. It was great to have you, Yehuda. Thanks so much for joining us and being part of this discussion. I would recommend to all our readers to check out his piece in The Atlantic and to also check out his response to Peter Beinart, which is called Memory Malpractice, which was in Tablet a couple months back. And to learn more about his organization and his own work, and um, and hopefully we'll have him on sometime in the future. Demir, any any kind of closing closing thoughts? No, Yehuda, just really thanks a lot. This was great. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you. And I I, I uh, hopefully hopefully as as the woke wars go on, I mean uh, I I think uh, you know the better aspects of liberalism end up sort of winning out. I I, ha- I have some something that approaches faith on that. Wow, you heard it here, guys. Demir is predicting the victory of liberalism over you. the wokes. <laughs> Thanks, Yehuda. Give <laughs> me your mouth to God's ears. Yeah. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.